Hello, Radioland, Podcastville, and all the ships at sea. My name is Seth Greenland, and you are listening to the LARB Radio Hour, brought to you by reader-supported Los Angeles Review of Books. Today on our show, Norman Klein and Margot Bistis are here to talk about their project, The Imaginary 20th Century. We have a conversation about the new Showtime series, Billions, that stars Damian Lewis and Paul Giamatti. Tom, what do you think of that show? Don't, don't say anything. Don't say anything. Joining me are my usual co-hosts, the professor, Tom Lutz. Hello, Tom. Seth. Hey, listen, how many ships at sea uh, listen to us? Do we have any account on that? Countless ships. Countless ships. Count- I have this on very good authority. Okay. I heard there were 25. You know, there's an app, so you can actually know the real number, and it's the number is countless. I'm downloading it right now. And the fiction editor of the LA Review of Books, Lori Weiner. Hello, Lori. Hi, Seth. Do you think that people overuse the word countless? Not you, but uh, people. You know, I've been accused of overusing the word binary. You do use that a lot. So uh, they're voting today. Yes. Super uh, this Tuesday. Day we're recording. Super. It's Super Tuesday, and they're voting all over the country. We are one day closer to the Trump Imperium, I think. And uh, how are we feeling about that, Lori Weiner? Is he going to, as, as members of the press, which I guess we technically are, is he going to be suing us? Should we start insulting him so he can be suing us? I think he will be suing members of the press. Um, but I still feel, as I've said before, and which is completely unholy and unkosher, and I shouldn't feel this way, but um, I still feel like this is unbelievably entertaining. I, I feel like it's Germany 1925. Lori Weiner, Lori Weiner, you are going straight to hell. <laughs> Tom Lutz, you are correct, sir. (laughs) Let's do the show. There's a new premium drama on Showtime called Billions. Uh, We've all been watching. It's uh, meant to be uh, Emmy bait. It stars uh, Damian Lewis from Homeland, Paul Giamatti from everything. Uh, What do you guys think? Well, we started out hate watching it, and now we're kind of watching. Well, I'll speak for myself. Now I'm watching it, watching it. And we should say we should say what it's about first. Tom, why don't you? Uh, give it's a- about the. It's really about the financial system and what goes wrong with it, and credit default swaps, and all of the kinds of uh, nasty um, machinations of a hedge fund. It's about a super wealthy guy who's played by Damian Lewis and a district attorney who is going after him and trying to bring him down, uh, played by Paul Giamatti. And Giamatti, I cannot take in this. He just seems fake to me, and it just seems like such... I, I never believe for a minute that he is that guy. Do you feel he's reached the point that he's playing the same character in literally everything he's doing? And he's always angry! He's so angry! He's, this is the character he played in Love and Mercy, the Brian Wilson movie. It's a version of the character he played in... Straight uh, out of Compton. Straight out of Compton. And he's the angry, tightly wound little guy who yeah. you want to smack. He's tortured and I don't care. But he's a great actor, so what, what happened to him? Why is he... Why is why he, is Lori, he... why has he become so unnuanced? Well, I'm not sure that I agree that he's becoming unnuanced. I think this show is really interesting because they chose to make the billionaire the attractive guy, which I think is an interesting thing to do in this climate. Um, yeah, not what they did with Madoff, for instance. No, well, you, there's nothing you could do and, with Madoff. And, and by Madoff, you mean the recent ABC movie exactly. in which Richard Dreyfus played Bernie Madoff. Right. Don't you remember first hearing about the Madoff thing and, and then 
th- saying the guy's name is Madoff. Of course, who didn't see this coming? Money, yeah. So well, I think what they were trying to do when I watched the series with high hopes, and I thought, oh, this is going to be a gritty Sidney Lumet style series, a mano a mano confrontation between these two well, yeah. New York guys. Damian Lewis is playing a an outer borough guy and Paul Giamatti is playing a more, you know, traditional Ivy League type and they're just gonna go at it in a way that's gonna create fantastic sparks. And where the series fails for me is in its the very glossiness of its surface. And I get that they're trying to depict a glossy world, but when you look at a series like The Wire or The Sopranos, you can almost smell what they're cooking in those it's kitchens. It's not on that level. Right. And and what I think is so, to me, what, what's so interesting about it is they've they've chosen to bleed the ethnicity out of it entirely. And how can you do a show in New York that's that has no ethnicity to it? It has no, there's no sense of any community other than the financial community or the legal community. It's like a Nora Ephron movie. And it feels like Toronto. And mm-hmm. and to me, that's a spectacular failure of storytelling. That's part of it. That's part of it. I think the worst part of it is that they are so wrapped up in the in the high concept parts of it, which is that the as Laurie was saying, the good looking guy is the rich guy and the schlubby looking guy is the is the district attorney. And also the 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 little bit of underclass talk you get is from Damian Lewis being from the Irish streets, and they're so wrapped up in that conceit that uh, that nobody has any reality on on any level. Also, they stack the deck um, so much for the billionaire, which again I think is was an interesting choice. You know, he's an exemplary father and husband. Laura, you have a few things to say about the women in billions. Well. Um, I think that the two lead women, which would be Damian Lewis's wife, whose name I believe is Maylene Ackerman. It's a Ma- yeah, Malin Ackerman. And the woman who plays Wendy, the therapist, whose name I don't Her name know. is Maggie Siff, and she plays Paul Giamatti's wife. And she is the therapist at the uh, Axe Capital, which is the company that Damian Lewis runs. So the, the writers have set up a, a neat triangle, whether or not it's believable, it's a narratively neat triangle when the prosecutor's wife works as the in-house shrink for the company he has targeted. Uh, well, they've, they've worked very hard to make these two women very intelligent uh, and players and in, in a sense, and, yeah. mm-hmm. very competent and, and, and very smart and so smart and competent, in fact, that I think part of the thesis of the show is that it's men and their testosterone that fuck up the world because the women are very level-headed and the men uh, keep trying to go back from the brink of a nuclear war between the two of them, but they can't because of their testosterone. So, so the subplot is that the, if women ruled the world, it would, be, it would be great. And, and I think that the therapist— And therefore role, greed is not the issue. Well, greed, yes. Greed is just another outcome of the testosterone. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, so, and, and I like that about it. So will you guys continue to watch? There have been six I, I can, yeah. episodes. I continue, yeah, I continue to hate watch. Hate watch. Laurie, no, I'll, I'll continue to watch. I'll continue to watch too. Billions. Check it out on Showtime. This is Seth Greenland. I'm here with Tom Lutz and Lori Weiner. You're listening to the LARB Radio Hour, 90.7 KPFK FM. Jerry Stahl, the author of Old Guy Dad, 
Weird Shit Happens When You Don't Die Young has been gracious enough to come back to our studio to tell us about another book he likes a lot. Welcome, Jerry. Thank you. This is actually a trilogy by uh, Philip Kerr, who has a detective named Bernie Gunther, who operated during the Nazi era in Germany. It's March Violets, The Pale Criminal, and A German Requiem. And I have to admit, for my own novel, uh, Painkillers, where it was a comedy with uh, Joseph Mengele. Living, How could that miss? Funny guy. Comedy gold. Living in Reseda at 96 and really pissed off about it. And uh, I was obsessed with Nazis and Nazi ideology and the fact that Hitler was a vegetarian, for example, and Nazi Germany was the first place to outlaw smoking, originally for Jews. And uh, I got a lot of my information from this fascinating really funny, dark, subversive collection by uh, Philip Kerr, who continues writing these books. The original trilogy is what I'm recommending, but he's still at it. I just read his new one, The Lady from Zagreb, if that's how you pronounce mm-hmm. Zagreb, which is phenomenal. And uh, I, I can't recommend it enough. If, you know, if you're into detective stuff, it's great, but mostly the atmosphere and the tone and uh, his portraits of the character of the day, like uh, Goebbels and Julius Stryker, are just worth the price of admission in themselves. So anything that takes place in Berlin in the 1930s is you know, in. just inherently in. fascinating. I mean, yeah. yeah, it's just... Well, it's a, it's a policeman who won't join the Nazi party. So he's already under suspicion himself. And take it from there. Um, Jerry, do you know an author called Hans Falada? No, I do not. He was... oh. It sounds illegal. He's he's <laughs> he's a guy who remained a fiction writer who remained in Germany during the war and was subsequently confined to a mental hospital. He wrote a book called Each Man Dies Alone about a German couple that begins silently protesting the war effort. It's it is one of the most incredible, intense, mind-blowing books I've ever read. And like Berlin Noir, completely captures what it was like to be in Germany and against Hitler during the war. And I think you would love that book. Thank you so much. I'm glad I showed up and got that recommendation. And Phenomenal. Bernie, Bernie Gunther uh, keeps, keeps there are new Bernie Gunther. He keeps novels, going. I think right? there's like six or seven of them. Right. But this trilogy is a, a work. It's to, sort of self-contained. Itself, right? Yeah. Originally they were grouped together. Then I guess he just decided to keep going. Yeah. He also wrote a crazy mystery based on Sir Isaac Newton. So, no kidding. Yeah, go yeah, that for, you know, crying out it. to be done, <laughs> and, and that laid an egg. Apparently, his publisher said, "Stick to Nazis, please." Yeah, we don't, we don't want the Newton trilogy. <laughs> but can I can I tell a story about Berlin in 1930 quickly? Please, please. Okay, so um, I was doing research. Uh, I'm writing a book about Oscar Hammerstein, and I was doing research on a. Um, show that he wrote called Ball at the Savoy in 1932. He adapted it. But it was originally a play by a guy named Paul Abraham, who was Austrian but lived in Berlin. And he opened the play in 32, and then, you know, at the end of January 33, Hitler's sworn in, and everything happens, and all the theater artists who are Jewish start leaving or being arrested or whatever. And I found a review of the Paul Abraham play in Berlin, written by a New York Times critic named C. Hooper Trask. Mm. 
So I started looking at C. Hooper Trask's work, and he was the New York Times stringer in Berlin, and he was reviewing theater in Berlin in 1933. And he kept saying, you know, this this person's arrested, this theater's closed, why isn't the Berlin press writing about this? And then he was reviewing the works that the Nazis were putting on, and he was, you know, describing how insanely ridiculous they were. And then in June of that year, he goes uh, on vacation in Italy, and he's driven off the road and killed, and that's it. That's the end of the story. When you so, say driven off the road, you mean somebody murdered he was him? A, he was it. well, that's my theory. Yeah. I mean, it was a car accident, sure. and they didn't find, you know, who drove him off the road. But I mean, clearly, right? Murdered by the Nazis because of his theater criticism. So I'm very interested. What a great in this story! Guy. Yeah, I yeah. want to have to find out more about. That's this a book. book. Theater yeah. critics usually <laughs> critics don't usually meet that fate, right? Well, only from playwrights, but not well. From right. I mean, yeah. not from the wishfully playwrights. in yeah. playwrights' minds, yeah. yeah. Jerry Stahl, thank you for coming in to tell us about Berlin Noir, March Violets, The Pale Criminal of German Requiem by Philip Kerr. Your book is OG Dad. Weird shit happens when you don't die young. Thank you again for being here. Such a pleasure. Thanks. This is Seth Greenland. I'm here with Tom Lutz and Lori Weiner. You're listening to the LARB Radio Hour, 90.7 KPFK-FM. Norman Klein and Margot Bistis are the co-authors of a new novel called The Imaginary 20th Century. It's not exactly a novel. It's not just a novel, but before we get into what it is, I'd like to welcome Margot and Norman to the Law Radio Hour. Thank you. Good to be here. So, The Imaginary 20th Century, it's a, I know it's a book because I'm holding it in my hands, but it's much, much more than, than just a book. So, why don't you begin by telling us exactly what The Imaginary 20th Century is? It's, it's an engine, a narrative engine. We call it a Wunderroman which actually doesn't exist, but we've convinced many Germans that there was a Wunderroman which in is the a, 19th century. Which is a century. novel of wonder? Uh, it's, a, it's a novel that runs by a water wheel, and it's a media novel that actually <laughs> is, is a machine. Uh-huh. And uh, apparently Schelling saw it in 1816 and wrote about it, and everyone in Germany is now convinced that, that it must be true. But th- it's difficult to describe an either-and kind of object. Right. I don't, I don't mean Everyone's to... used to the either-or. Well, this will be challenging for you because it, it's, it's, a, it's a kind of a book that has to be seen, and yet our listeners cannot see it at the moment. Yes. And yet it's not just what's in the book, which is the, the words and the illustrations and all that. It's, uh, Margo, what else is it? It's a curatorial um, project in in a very large way, and at its beginning, it uh, I had the idea from um, an exhibition I was curating at the Getty Research Institute. I found the first objects, visual caricatures, uh, sat- satirical caricatures from the late 19th century when I was doing research for an exhibition on the French art world in the 19th century. So its origins are archival and curatorial, uh, and uh, that's and, and visual and visual, yeah, and visual. And then, how did it? There's so much going on. It's 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 a history. It's a narrative. It's made up. It's true. It's just there's a lot going on. But how did it? How did it go from a curatorial project to a book? 
It started as a media art installation that was based on curatorial research and the visual and literary records of the late 19th, early 20th century. And we constructed this interactive archive. We call it a narrated media archive, for lack of a better word, an online tale. Uh, We've had a number of different terms for it. And then uh, it was supposed to be on a DVD-ROM. That technology became obsolete And so we had to put it on the web, and we had to reprogram it several times because it was first in Director, then in Flash. Flash in 2010 was canceled, as you may know. And then we uh, reprogrammed it in JavaScript and put it on the web. Everything is streaming today. Were you cursing the whole time you had to keep redoing it? Well, the idea that technology is uh, definitely a pressure, definitely a constraint, and it's also extraordinary flexibility. I remember seeing this um, seven, eight years ago, uh, 10 years ago. Yes. And at that point, it was a CD-ROM, which was still the newest form of presentational technology we had, and now it's extinct. Yeah. We're living in a world of capitalist parasites. It sucks the life out of one thing. I mean, like publishing, like uh, slides, everything. So we've witnessed the parasitical madness of cultural capitalism year by year, minute by minute. And so now we're experts on what we didn't imagine we had to be experts on. You've just won a lifetime membership to KPFK, <laughs> I think. Any, ding, anyone, ding, ding. Anyone who says cultural I parasites. I heard something ringing. I heard this ringing. I thought it was in my ears. I think right now our, our listeners may be a little bit confused in trying to put together what this is. Maybe you could tell a little bit of the narrative and how, what the narrative is and how it relates to everything else that is going on. All right. Well... Let's jump to 1917. A man sets up an archive. He's an unusual character. The archive is about his niece. He's obsessed with his niece. He's a little more than obsessed with his niece. We don't know how much more, but more than he wants to let on. His niece has a kind of legendary connection to um, New York in particular, Uh, Part of the legend is that in 1901, she selects four men to seduce her, each with a different version of the new century. The archive is over 2,000 images. He begins to mechanize it. He gets obsessed with it. But who she was and what she was is peculiar because his job over 50 years was to be hired by the oligarchs of Los Angeles to erase crimes that were embarrassing. That would be everything from murder to diplomacy to business. And so how do we trust that archive? So the archive exists with all of its narrative jumps. We found it in 2004 in a series of 344 boxes. It was worm-eaten. It was disgusting. It was filled with paper. We had to put chemicals on it. We had to put it in a freezer. We had to do all this shit to try to get the thing to happen. And then we slowly realized that it wasn't just accidental, that it had some logic, but and that these spaces between me mean something. So we assembled what we thought the archive was and then began the project of what did he hide, what did he leave out, in what way is seduction a form of espionage, and is espionage a form of seduction. And so the book shall we say, corrects the archive. The archive tells its story, and it's a kind of archaeological historical novel. 
Would that work? Yeah, and yet, as the historical novel of the future, of an imagined future. Of course, yes, right. yes, yes. A part of it is the future can only be told in reverse, but that's a strange thing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> now, in the course of the novel, you have a little um, excursus on uh, the picaresque as a form. Oh, I guess I'm obsessed right? with it. Yeah, why, why the picaresque? Because this is a picaresque. That is, it's, it, it happens in episodes, and some not entirely discreet, but but it happens in episodes. It's very episodic. Yes, I mean, f- first, the term picaresque has this very uh, plastic bubblegum meaning. Sometimes it's a specific form of storytelling that develops in the 16th and 17th centuries, and it began in Spain and it traversed and it wound. It wound it's, it's Quixote. Uh, well, it's more Sancho even than him. Quixote is mad, but Sancho just wants lunch. And they say, well, why are you with this mad guy? He said, are you going to give me lunch? Then we can talk about whether he's crazy or not. <laughs> I'm here for lunch. <laughs> he's a survivalist, yeah. you might say. But every week in these picaresque stories, and the picaro is a Spanish word, uh, the world will get worse. So the continuity is that whatever that road looks like, it will look worse a week later. So it's a, it's a kind of rogue's tale with so many ironies, it's very brittle, it's very self-reflexive, it uses epistolary tricks, and it, it's very rich. Uh, obviously, Huckleberry Finn is also a picaresque novel. And I'm, I'm interested in this uh, in relation to kind of theories of history as well, uh, as I know that you both are uh, too, right? Um, can you talk a little bit about that? Ah, well. uh, you, know, I, we, you know, I talk about it in, in relation to Leotard. I think that you that you like to talk about it in relation to the Anal School. Well, n- not just. I mean, the Anal School were, were a group of historians who got very obsessed with what came to be called microhistory, among other things, that influence on Foucault, or whatever. But what it amounts to is, you go through an event, you look at the assembled information. It's a little bit like looking at a plate after dinner to figure out what they ate based on the stains on the plate. You, what's been consumed is probably what you really want to know, and you put it together, and then you make a leap. You make an archival fictional leap. You make a construction that's supposed to tell the truth. But in that construction, you create a kind of picaresque with the incidents that return and don't return and the forces that are involved and the POV of the people. You begin to realize that all history is a kind of fictional act. As Harry the the rogue in this story keeps saying, the thing about fiction is it's much more believable than fact. And any historian will tell you that. The evidence you find is constantly begging for you to basically lie with dignity about it. So there is a kind of picaresque quality in all history. How deeply involved did the two of you get in this world in this fictional world did you did you really believe in it did you feel like you were in it i mean oh, yes and also i mean it wasn't it hard to finish you know and move on as uh, well? well it's not finished but but the point is it's done <laughs> <laughs> i mean that's all you can say but the, the, also the language well, i'll give you one example very briefly i wanted to know what it was like to walk off a train and I realized that the trains are very important in a way in that era. And it took me forever to find the verb. The verb was to alight a train. When you alight a train, the smoke and the, the water exhaust or will ruin your clothing unless you get move fast. The bottom of, of the 
steps can't scrape against the floor so you can trip and kill yourself. And then you're carrying all this shit and then you're wearing all this shit. So finding a light was very important. I did that with the entire... It's an archaeological journey. Margaret did the same thing. It's curated with the highest seriousness that good fiction deserves. Now, uh, you both work at art schools, right? Norman, you're at CalArts. Yes, I am. And Margot, you're at Art Center, um, mm-hmm. College of Design in Pasadena. And uh, and so this the kind of multidisciplinary work that you're doing here you're right at home uh, in your institutions, right? It's, it's very normal to be working in various media at the same time. So this is not, uh, this is just the, the water you swim in. Or do you feel like you're still working in some, at some remove from what you find going on in your institutions? I think we're a curiosity in both places. Uh, uh, so that's a, um, is that a polite a, way to put it? That's a, that's a, that's a badge of honor. <laughs> and I agree, it is a badge of honor. But I also think that there is a, a liberty that, um, as we often say, we're not beholden to a profession and the reproduction of that profession. I like to use the think about Foucault's point that uh, when one is squarely positioned within a profession, one has the responsibility to reproduce it. Mm-hmm. So lacking that responsibility. Um, opens up possibilities. And I I kind of see it as um, uh, the two of us collaborating, uh, you know, a real collaborative project with the artists who worked with us on the online tale. Um, And uh, that, uh, yeah, the art school environment is absolutely key and to the the kind of autonomy that one is given uh, as a result of being on faculty there. I've done numerous workshops on it also. Mm-hmm. with games people, with, with architects and so on. It's pretty clear that they can use this in the art world. Yeah. And so where do people uh, go to find it? Well, www. Dot imaginary 20th century with the number 20 to save you time. Okay. 20thcentury.com. And then when you hit it, you'll see a very uh, expansive site that looks more like a website than a sales page, but it allows you to purchase the book through Amazon or through some other, other like PayPal or something. And then the, the login site is separate. Can, do you, can, can I also donate to Donald Trump on that page? Because that's, <laughs> I just want to do that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I, we were talking about Trump as everyone is. He's, be, he's becoming a noun and a verb very quickly in yeah. everyone's conversation. Yeah. The imaginary, the very frightening imaginary uh, yeah, 21st he's, century. He's, yeah, the I, frightening I, imaginary yeah. 21st century. I'm, I'm, I'm researching the American present in, in another project, and I'm terrified about how accurately he fits into where where we've been and where we're going but he is a picaresque all all of his own i mean he's this so you could easily make a picaresque about donald trump <laughs> true. L- let's hope it sort of slows down as of november mm-hmm. yeah, all right the imaginary 20th century it's a book it's an archive it's a lifestyle <laughs> <laughs> thank you norman it's and a delicious Margo. snack food <laughs> yeah, yeah. thank you norman and margo for coming on the larb radio hour thank you for having us it was fun thanks to norman klein and margo bistis jerry stahl thanks to our producer and moral conscience that would be jerry gorin Ernesto Aureliano, our crack production assistant. Czar of scheduling, Aviva de Kornfeld. We couldn't do this show without the generosity of the Goldhirsch Foundation, and this is the point where we thank them. Find us on the web at www.lareviewbooks.org. Download us on iTunes. We no longer care if you give us a rating. 
That's a that's a relatively new thing. <laughs> and and listen, Seth, I, when did Aviva get demoted from being our spiritual advisor to being our czarina of scheduling? I thought you were mad at her. Oh no, I don't. I, with Lori, was that your idea? I hate her. Is, is she? Is we're she, having a girl fight. <laughs> is she no longer our spiritual advisor? Well, that's if she is. You you announced her. Wrong, is right? she hearing about it here? Is this like when a guy in the NBA yeah, exactly. hears he's been traded by uh, an app? Aviva, I don't really hate you. You're a very valuable. I actually like you very much. You're a very valuable member of the team. I think you're pretty, too. See you next week. Nailed it.